Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooldop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Sarah Dowie is an experienced secondary school English teacher teaching on the North Yorkshire coast. She's also in the final year as a PhD research student in the Department of Education at the University of York. Inspired by a whole school research project into growth mindset, Sarah enrolled for a research master's looking at the investigation of how theory could be applied in the classroom. Her current research interests include teacher attitudes to metacognition, how metacognition can be used in the classroom to develop soft skills and academic attainment. She's passionate about bridging the gap between theory and practice so that educators can develop and share their understanding of how research can be applied and developed in the classroom. More information about Sarah's PhD can be found on the Open Science Framework and on her webpage, metacognitively.com. So you're very welcome, Sarah. How are you? Oh, well, good. Thank you. Well, it's very nice to meet you. I've read your lovely website. It's very exciting to find a teacher who, in addition to working in a school, is doing a PhD. How do you manage that? Lots of juggling. Yeah, it's. I did my master's full-time while teaching full-time and I'll, over a year, and I'll, I'll be honest, that nearly killed me. So I teach for three days and then I do my PhD for two days. I think one of the things that makes it manageable is because a lot of the research that I'm doing and one of my studies is based at the school where I teach as well, which means that a lot of what I'm doing, I can apply into the classroom and there's a large amount of crossover. That is absolutely brilliant. And your PhD, you're looking at, I think, interweaving non-cognitive skills training with the teaching of English literature. Is that what you're looking at? Awareness of the use of metacognition and self-efficacy in teaching? Yeah, uh, there's two areas really that I'm looking at. The first is practically, there's a lot of research out there suggesting that uh, metacognitive or teaching with a metacognitive approach can raise student attainment. So I just wanted to investigate that practically in a classroom. There was nothing really I found looking at English schools into that. And then the more I looked at that, I looked at the impact that actually that could have on self-efficacy. And there are studies that suggest student self-efficacy can again raise academic attainment, but also looking at different areas like academic anxiety and whether metacognition and having greater self-efficacy can reduce academic anxiety in the classroom. And then as part of that, I wanted to look at teacher understanding of metacognition, because there's a large amount of research out there, again, that suggests that teacher metacognition has an impact on student metacognition. And the more that teachers understand it, the more the students understand it. But when I dug down to try and find something investigating that, 
there wasn't really a lot out there. So I again, I developed my own study and started investigating that as part of my original study into metacognition in the English classroom. And before we sort of talk about that survey that I think you did with teachers, yep. your definition of metacognition, or one that you like, I think, is that it's a process of recognizing, understanding, monitoring and evaluating one's own thinking. Yeah. I think the term that educators generally are familiar with when they think about metacognition is the one that's banded around a lot is thinking about thinking. And I think that makes a lot of sense if we, you know, look at the component parts of the word metacognition. And I suppose as an English teacher, that's again, that's where I went. That's where I was looking at it. So meta meaning about and cognition, looking at intellectual processes. But when I started really researching and looking at applying into the classroom, I found that quite a difficult term. I found it a bit woolly and I didn't really understood what that meant practically, how thinking about thinking was going to to really help me. And for me now, as you said, it's more about knowing how to tackle an academic task by understanding and being aware of those thought processes in order to completely successfully complete a task. And the more I researched it, the more that I came up with my own model, really looking at metacognition as this four part process, looking at selecting, monitoring, evaluating and reflecting on the strategies that we can use to help us complete the task. And then also looking at around that, the different areas that can influence that. So, for example, self-regulation and goal setting and motivation. So let's bring that sort of back into context that, you know, a parent, for example, would understand. A child has a poem to analyze for their homework. And let's just try and apply what you've just said there. You've just mentioned the first word is selection. So how would that apply to that particular scenario? So say, for example, a child being given, and usually when they're given a task like that, it would be, say, for example, how does the writer present the theme of war in Dulcia Decorum Est? So the first thing that they need to do is work out the strategies that are going to help them do that, which strategies will will help them with that task. So, for example, it might be going through the text initially and highlighting the quotes that are relevant to answer that question, so the ones that deal with the theme of war. And then when they're looking at that, and they've, so that helps them focus and select what they want to do, they might then look at one of their strategies might be using a dictionary to look at those words in detail to work out what they really mean. So it's picking strategies that will help them complete the task. And presumably there's quite a lot of sort of scaffolding there because as the teacher, you're saying, no, what do you think you might do next, presumably? Or, or listen, what, what, what worked last time? But these, again, are lovely strategies that presumably could be reflected at home. Parents can ask great questions as well. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the, for me, the benefits of metacognition is that once we start using, you know, the common language and saying, what can you do to select a strategy to help you with this, is that it gives students more control over their own learning. It's not giving us there's a secret or a special way to learn, you know, that a teacher imparts with you. Part of one of the tasks that students have been doing as part of my research is learning quotations. And increasingly, the GCSEs and assessments in, in British schools are the students do have to learn and memorise a lot more. So, for example, if you have to learn 15 quotes about Lady Macbeth, how do you do that? What's the most efficient way to do that? You know, in the past, I've been guilty very much at the start of my teaching career is going and saying, right, go and learn those 15 quotes. You come back next week, we'll do a test on them. 
well, that doesn't actually help that student learn those quotes. So we look at different strategies. So we look at writing the quotes and maybe doing a picture that will help them memorize them, self-quizzing and self-testing that parents can really help with at home, getting the students to work through, getting them to look at the ones that they know and they don't need to test themselves as often on those ones as the ones that they've still got to learn. So there's lots of different ways that they can be used practically at home as well as in the classroom. And you can totally imagine that some students just so intuitively understand that there is a diversity of sort of strategies that they can choose from and use and they've refined it and they know what works. And maybe other students might struggle a little bit to think what they might be. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important because as a teacher, sometimes, you know, and as a parent, you know, my I have children that have gone through the secondary system and still are, you know, they'll get a homework and they won't necessarily know how to complete that task. And again, that's where parents can help at home. But I also think it's as well with having a range of tasks is different tasks will work well for different people. So, for example, when we were tackling in my class, we were looking at learning quotations. Afterwards, when we'd done it, we went on the class and I asked them, what worked for you? And for some students, it was writing them down and putting them on post-it notes and having them in the room so they could see them. With other students, it was recording them so that they could hear them. With other students, it was the self-testing method and space learning. The other one was trying to draw it. So there were lots of different strategies that they could do it. And I suppose that takes us on to the next part of that process of metacognition, which is monitoring it. If something of the strategies you've chosen isn't working, then rather than persisting with it, it's going back and choosing something else and then seeing if that works. And I think there's a lovely tone of sort of active participation in what you're describing. I can imagine what that classroom looks and feels like when everyone is busily sort of thinking through what strategies they're using and sort of evaluating how they're getting along. Yeah, I think one of the things that I particularly enjoyed of seeing through it is as a teacher, you find yourself stepping back. You know, originally students do have to be aware of these strategies and some will, as you've said, intuitively know them or have picked them up, you know, throughout their education and in different areas and other students won't. And it's sharing those strategies and, you know, helping each other and almost you step back then at that point and become the facilitator, allowing them to apply those strategies to develop their own learning. And returning to that lovely point you made about sort of effective questioning, teachers are adept at using questioning that opens up children's thinking. But can you just tell us a little bit more about that, what that looks like and what great questions would sort of encourage that type of metacognitive thinking? I think one of the first things that I started doing, and and again, it's funny how often we do this as teachers and, and don't realize, is explicitly explaining our own thought processes and where we're going. So if a student gives an answer, quite often it's, well, how did you come up with that answer? What exactly does that mean? And it's developing and it's probing further into things. And as well as if a student comes up with an answer that is is incorrect, then thinking about whether they've come up with that answer rather than just going, no, that's not the answer I'm thinking of, or no, that's incorrect, going, okay, well, how did we get to that answer so that we can then unpick that and look at how to get the right answer. And I think that leads to another point as well. I think sometimes we can be guilty of when we asked a question is the question we're asking is, what is the answer in my head? Not necessarily what is the correct answer. 
And that's one of the things I love about teaching English literature is when we're exploring texts is that quite often students explore them in ways and come up with interpretations that are very different to mine or I haven't come up with. And it's fostering that sense of inquiry in the classroom and developing that. And Sarah, often it's said or I've read that perhaps children's appetite for English literature or, you know, text analysis maybe is it's not as popular as perhaps it should be. In terms of children's enjoyment of the subject, do you feel that this kind of approach enables them to enjoy it a little bit more or can it feel a little bit onerous to go into that kind of depth of thinking about what they're doing? I think one of the things that's key with this is the passion for literature, the passion for those books. So I think nothing kills somebody's passion by walking in and going, right, we're going to study Macbeth because it's on the GCSE curriculum. You know, we study these texts because of the phenomenal text, you know, the stories in there, you know, the relevance, we lo- we're looking at something. So for example, I'm teaching 1984 to my year nines at the moment, and it's incredibly relevant. And it's about them understanding and getting excited about the story. But the other thing when we're looking at it is what we're analysing is, you know, how's this writer trying to manipulate you? What impression are they trying to create? And getting them to unpick that. And I think that is a really important life skill is being able to question, is being able to unpick language, is being able to look at different interpretations so that you can come up with your own interpretation and point of view. You know, students do sometimes come with the preconception of, oh, Shakespeare, it's Macbeth. But once you start talking about the story, you start talking about the common themes, and then we unpick the language within there, actually it suddenly becomes really exciting. And I can imagine in a very busy classroom, it takes time to sort of reflect at the sort of level that you wish to do and give students time. Is there any room for sort of peer-to-peer collaboration in this sort of process of developing metacognition? Absolutely. And I think there has to be because it's part of it's empowering students to learn from each other and from themselves. I think initially you you have to, as with anything, you, you know, you demonstrate to students how this works. For example, you know, if we're we're analysing a particular section of a text, you know, we begin by modelling it. I explain how we do it. We take class questions, their ideas. We look at how to do that, and then eventually, you know, you start to take scaffolding down and you start to step back, and then students are more able to do that because they have the subject knowledge, but also they have these these different strategies that they can use to apply it themselves. And I think that's really, really important. You know, I'm not the font of all knowledge. It's their job to come to it and to investigate and to inquire and to develop their own understanding. And for teachers listening who are, again, interested in this sort of concept of the, the student as active participant I think I've read some of your tips somewhere that are very, very useful about how we engage students in the process. You know, some of those tips, you know, don't just ask them to copy what you write because that will reduce their focus, for example. Yeah. And again, this is something I've developed. But when just before I was I started doing my intervention, when I was refining it, I ran an acceptability study with some year nines on Macbeth. And one of the things that overridingly at the end of that, I did a questionnaire uh, for this case study and asked students what they found most useful. And the things that they found most useful, not only in helping them understand, but in helping them understand how to do it themselves, was where I explicitly modeled my thought process. So for example, if we got an essay question, explore how Lady Macbeth is presented, you know, in this section of the play. I explained right from the start, as if I was a student, 
this is what I do really explicitly, crossing out words, why I'm choosing words, why I'm selecting quotes, which words I'm analyzing and why, so they can see my thought process all the way through and making that really, really explicit. And at the start, they were trying to copy it as I was writing it. And then I thought they were so busy, desperately blessed them, trying to copy everything that I've done, that they weren't listening to what I was saying. You know, the cognitive load was too great. So it's now it's about pre-planning that. And it's right, just you've got to listen. And then again, I ask them questions when they do it. They don't just sit there and watch me do it. I go, right, okay, what does this word, what does this suggest? Which quote could I put down here? Oh, this isn't a very good word. What's a better word we could do for that? And keeping them active in that process. And then either, you know, taking a, a copy of that so they've got an example in their book to look at. But I think that's really important that they're part of that process too, that I'm modelling with them, not at them. <laughs> I mean, it is so exciting. I can completely feel what that must be like for them in that exciting classroom environment. It's just so, such a lovely tip. And I also have read that you've suggested don't over plan because, children should see you making mistakes, thinking it through, ruling stuff out, choosing a different word, etc. Yeah, I think it's, you know, as teachers, we are subject experts. And obviously, you know, quite rightly so, because we, you know, we need to help students develop that knowledge. But I think as well, they, they need to have the process model to them. And again, this is what metacognition is about. It's about understanding, you know, how we do something. It's about, you know, quite often when students are doing something, I'll be doing it at the same time you know, writing something, they can see me crossing out because that's how you improve, you know, that's how, you know, I write something, oh, God, I'm really not happy with that. How do I get better for that? It's, I think learning's quite messy and messy in a good way in that, you know, it's very hard to write something, you know, first time, first draft, neatly. And sometimes you can be trying so hard to do that to make everything look perfect and to have no crossings out and to be neat that actually that takes away that thought process so it's about showing them that actually it's okay to do that it's okay to make a mistake it's about rectifying and recognizing those mistakes it's about selecting better words it's about selecting a better way and I really enjoy doing that because students can see that modeled and then they can apply that to their own learning now, I have to say, when I read what your PhD was about and this kind of great interest in teacher sort of awareness of the use of metacognition, etc., I thought, isn't metacognition something that all teachers understand thoroughly and are used to putting into practice? I was quite surprised maybe that it's even a topic of interest. I think so. I mean, when I first started doing it about three years ago, it, it didn't have the traction that it does now, and it's building quite a big traction. I think one of those are the reasons is with the work the Education Endowment Foundation are doing with that and their teacher toolkit and the, you know, the impact that, that their evidence in that it shows that it has on attainment. I think there are things quite often that we do that are metacognitive. I'm starting to analyse the results from my research now, and a lot of teachers are put in what is metacognition? What does it mean to you? And thinking about thinking. And at the other end, I've got some people that have said they agree with, you know, a particular research model. So there's quite a variety out there. I think I found that over, I mean, I've been teaching for 16, 17 years now, that it's something that I've honed and I feel comfortable with. I wish, I know we all do that, but I wish I'd known at the start of my career more about metacognition, more about the theory of it, more about how to apply that in the classroom. I think that would have helped make me a far more effective 
teacher. And it does seem to be the Education and Diamond Foundation provides the kind of the templates that teachers can use, but some of them, sometimes they seem a little bit complex. And are you trying to create a kind of a model? What's the sort of output from your PhD research that you hope teachers will be able to use uh, in practice? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've, and it, it, it was never what I set out to do, to be honest, I just really love learning and I, I kind of fell into it a bit through a, a research project. I thought I'd quite like to do my master's and I did my master's and I just loved doing it. And that's really, if I'm honest, why I did my PhD because I'm really interested in it. But the more I did it, the more I found that there seems to be almost in some areas research that's done and you wonder if a researcher has ever been in a classroom and could apply those things <laughs> into everyday situations you know if I think of some classes that I have last lesson on a Friday and I think well great but would that apply to that and the more I do it is I find I suppose my purpose and one of the reasons I set up my website last year was because a couple of people had said to me you know why don't you do this we're really interested to see how as a teacher you apply that research in the classroom and I suppose that's been a byproduct, really, than, than something I originally set out to do. But I've become really passionate about that as well. As teachers, we are quite time poor because of all the different things that we have to do, all the assessments, you know, particularly after, you know, after a time of COVID and all, you know, the new things we've had to learn with that. So I think there's definitely a room for bridging that gap between theory and what it actually looks like in the classroom if you're a teacher taking that theory and applying it. And what would you say in the course of your research you've discovered as kind of myths or falsehoods about metacognition amongst teachers? I think one of the things, it's, it's almost like a bolt-on, that it's something that we do separately or it's something that's maybe subject-specific. The kinds of things that I'm talking about, live modelling, a range of strategies, are things that most teachers will do a lot within the classroom. It's about refining those and making them probably more explicit and making them as, as effective as we can. I think sometimes one of the good things about research is we're becoming more wary as educators of fads. And I think there may be sometimes that idea of dismissing metacognition as a fad. I remember when I was doing my master's about four years ago, the big thing was mindset. And I did my master's on mindset. And then it almost becomes reduced to, I remember with growth mindset, you know, the word yet that actually all growth mindset was, you know, I haven't done that yet. You know, I haven't learned that yet. And that actually reduced quite a complex and nuanced piece of, you know, a research theory into that. So I think one of the concerns with for me with metacognition is that it becomes misunderstood or, or reduced into something that's a fad. And there are certain have been, you know, many fads within teaching that maybe got more prominence than they, than they should have had. But I think metacognition, the more I look at it, the more I look at this process, the more I can see it helping me and my students in the classroom. It's quite interesting because if you take some other, some sort of neuro myths like learning styles, yeah, oh, learning yes. styles are so attractive to people because they just are easy to make sense of, even though they're completely not backed up by research evidence at all. I think that metacognition, it seems to indicate a lot more complexity and potentially that might have been quite off-putting for people when they don't see the sort of the, the rich outputs that it can lead to. Yeah, I think so. And it's funny when talking about fads, learning styles was definitely one of those things. I remember having to do lesson plans where I had to differentiate for 
kinesthetic learners and audio learners and you know and going back and doing that when I think of my teaching career there have been a number of things and I, I didn't question it to be honest I didn't even think to look at the research or or to do it I was just told to do it so you know and it, it kind of snowballing and gain in popularity and as a result of that I think they get maybe the prominence that without that evidence I think metacognition it is quite complex you know it's taken me a year to come up with my own definition of it. It took me a couple of months to work out whether self-regulation, I considered self-regulation to be part of that or something slightly separate to that. But that doesn't mean that it isn't accessible to everybody. Not everybody needs to go into that level of detail. You know, I'm doing that for a PhD study. In terms of the classroom, there's lots of work that, you know, I'm doing in the classroom practically that I don't, have to have this amount of detailed knowledge for and I think it's where the EEF and their guidance is good is that it is a good starting point but sometimes I think even then you know we need to particularly if you're at the beginning of your maybe teaching career is to take a step further back from that because that does assume a level of expertise that maybe we don't all have or we don't all have the time to go away and research and find out. And I think it's easier to understand how these sort of strategies around metacognition can be applied to, say, English literature. I think that you've made that really clear. But when it comes to the teaching of other subjects like science, you know, I don't know, religion, philosophy, is it something that needs to be tweaked by subject specialists or leaders or what you're saying your model is applicable to all subjects? I think my model is applicable to all subjects because it's the selecting that's the difference. So the strategies that students select will be different. So the strategies you would select to analyse a text would be very different to the strategies you select to work out an equation. I think before even we get to metacognition, if students are attempting an academic task, there are three things they need. And these three things are applicable to absolutely any subject. They need subject knowledge. So do they know enough about the subject to complete a task? So if they're sitting in assessment in any subject, they need to have the basic subject knowledge. They also need to, if they're going to be fully successful, understand the success criteria. How are you able to succeed at something if you don't know what you need to do to be able to succeed? You know, How do they know how they're going to get marks, what they're going to be awarded for? And then the third thing I think they need, which varies from subject to subject, are these academic learning strategies. And they're the, do I know the strategies that will help me complete the task? And I think that, you know, the, these are the three things that you need. And then once you have those three things, then you can begin the metacognitive process. For me, there's a lot of talk about metacognitive strategies. And I don't think strategies are metacognitive. I think the strategies are cognitive because you're thinking about them. So, and again, I think sometimes that's where some of the confusion comes in because there are lots of different terms that overlap and nobody's really kind of nailed it down. So I think that's probably what I'm trying to do in my PhD is as a teacher, nail down what I feel works for me in a classroom, but can work in other classrooms as well. And can you give us a sort of a tangible example? There must be examples that stick in your mind where you've seen potentially a demotivated student become motivated with the application of these ideas that you're putting in place in in your lovely classroom environment. Yeah, I think certainly. So I'll take, for example, the the learning the quotations because it's part of one. You know, the first time we did it, I, I did just as a bit of an experiment, say, go away and, and learn these quotations. And it was like, yeah, right, okay. And some students were getting, 
you know, two, three out of 15, the other students that were maybe more conscientious and motivated were getting full marks. So there was quite a range within there. And then once we started looking at different strategies we could use, so for example, one of them was dual coded revision cards. So on one side of the card, they wrote the quotation, is this a dagger I see before me? On the other side, they would come up with a picture and the picture could be literal, it could be a dagger, it could be a cartoon, so it could be funny, it could be a little bit more metaphorical. So for example, the quote, brave Macbeth, well, he deserves that name. Some students draw a line on one side because they associate a line with bravery. And then once we have those cards, we looked then at how to use them for quizzing in the classroom. So if I held up and I'm atrocious at drawing and, um, you know, they love to look at my drawings, my awful drawings and try and decode those, but it made it really memorable for them. And then we looked at, you know, swapping those. So working in pairs and your partner held up your picture and you had to see if you could work out what, remember the quote on the other side. And then after that, we looked at spaced learning. So, you know, if you knew a quote, then you put it into one pile and you, you left it for a couple of days. Whereas if you didn't know the picture and the quote, then you looked at it more frequently. And we looked at some of the theory about that, you know, the, the forgetting curve. And I found that over quite a short amount of time, students were getting sort of 12, 13, 14, 15, because they'd found a way that they enjoyed doing, but also helped them and I think that was the important thing even more than the fact that they enjoyed it was the fact that they'd found a practical strategy that helped them and you know we could go around the classroom and you know students could do quotes and quotes and quotes and quotes and quotes because they understood how to learn them and we were reviewing them frequently. And it's so lovely for their self-esteem isn't it that they can see themselves actively making progress Yeah, definitely. And I think as well that that builds into the self-efficacy. So by our self-efficacy, I mean that belief that they can complete a task successfully. And what will be their idea of success, you know, will be different to students. So it might be for a student that's only got three out of 15, that I can do 10 out of 15. For another student, it might be 15 out of 15. But again, it's developing that self-efficacy so they can believe in what they're doing it it starts to reduce the anxiety. If you believe that you can do something, then you get less anxious about it and you're more prepared for it. So it helped develop those. And definitely, you know, it became almost as much as (laughs) a fun part of the lesson in a way, you know, that students enjoyed showing off their knowledge. And that's what, you know, how as well, how we sort of try to change the language of, you know, when we have an assessment, I say, it's not a test. I said, it's about showing off what you know. It's about showing off all those lovely quotes you've learned. It's about showing off that you you know how to analyze things and turning that idea around that we are assessing them. Of course, we're assessing them, but getting them to change the way that they look at that as it's an opportunity to demonstrate what they've learned rather than sort of pick them up for what they haven't learned. Yeah, I really love that point. That's lovely. I I can't let you go without talking about homework because (laughs) so many parents, you know, sometimes I'll meet parents and they'll say, do you know what? They open up the homework and they just stare at it. They don't know where to start. They don't understand the question. And, you know, it's tea time and parents are exhausted and this can be at primary or secondary school. And it does really bring home that kind of metaphor of getting on a bicycle. You know, you have to hold the saddle a little bit to get them going sometimes on their homework. But could you just, I know you're a parent as well, give us a few little tips 
that might help at that time to get them started, even if it is asking great questions or using that lovely model that you described earlier? How do we start with that? How might we use it? Yeah, I think one of the things I sort of I do, particularly my daughter, is, is get her to explain it to me, you know, and to talk me through it before she tries to do anything. I remember a couple of months ago, she had to learn all the parts in a circuit board and she had to test on it. And she brought me a beautiful diagram that she'd done. It was absolutely gorgeous. She spent ages coloring it. And she said she's got to learn it, but she couldn't learn it. She could replicate it, but she couldn't learn it. So then I got her to explain to me, right, okay, she was talking about the the processor. And I said, what does that do? And then we were talking about the board and what does that do? And then we couldn't. So I said, come on, let's have a look it up. And then together we came up with the idea as well, actually, it's a bit like Lego, isn't it? You know, you have the board that you put other parts on, this bit's the brain. And once you can kind of get them to apply it to different areas or to think in it in different ways by questioning them and asking them to explain it to you or saying, right, let's look at this together or we're learning spellings, what different ways can we use to learn those spellings, then I think they're really helpful. Yeah, that's lovely. I really, I can just imagine how sort of it opens up their thinking and the chat and it's not sort of, right, what do you need to do, you know? (laughs) And I think that's it. It's not sometimes, particularly with homework as well, you know, we're busy, you know, our children have been at school all day and they're tired. It's about getting it completed. And homework for me as a teacher is never about, let's get this done. It's an activity. It's about the learning and it's about what have you learned here? You know, what can you show off that you've learned from this homework? And having a lovely diagram is great, but if you haven't learned anything about it, then really, for me, that homework hasn't achieved what it's set out to do. And I think that's where as parents, we can help by questioning and finding out about that learning and being really interested in it as well. You know, I learned a lot about circuit boards from that And she got really interested because I was really interested and I was questioning it. I was going, but if that's that and that's that, how does that work? And then she suddenly became the expert and she didn't know. She went away and found out and she came back and she was like, oh, mum, right, okay, this is what this does and this is what this does. Yeah, that's a gorgeous example. Yeah, where they become the teacher and you're the sort of the interested pupil. Yeah, and it, it's like that with the quizzing for quotations. You know, you show me, I'll show you this. You tell me what you know. And she really enjoyed that coming back. And I really enjoyed learning something new as well. And I think in the past, I've been guilty of, oh, great, Tick, you've done it. Isn't your diagram lovely and neat? And it goes back to what I said before about learning sometimes being messy. What she actually ended up with, and she went back and sort of retweaked it and did, it wasn't actually as pristine as that. But it really helped her understand what she needed to do. And she was really proud of that when she went in. And actually now, if I ask her a few months down the line about that, she's remembered it because we spent a long time on that process and she can talk it through. Yeah, that's so lovely. I always use the metaphor of knots, you know, in learning that it takes time to sort of work them out and massage them and think about, you know, just spending time on little bits of that homework can make it really memorable and effective. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's about that. And it's about, as I said, letting the child as well unpick those knots 
and I've been guilty of sometimes with the homework going, oh, come on. And then it's almost me doing the homework. And again, <laughs> tick, you know, the homework gets done. Yeah. You know, the homework gets done. Or, you know, how do you spell this? How do you do that? Well, come find out for yourself. Come back and do that. And yeah, it's, I think, sometimes remembering that it's not our homework, it's their homework. Yeah, exactly. That is a very good tip. <laughs> and lastly, Sarah, I know we're going to feature you as our researcher of the month on Tooled Up. So we're, we're going to be talking about your research a lot to schools that we work with and parents that we work with. But for those listening who really want to enrich their knowledge around metacognition, I know you have a lovely website yourself. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and also recommend any books or resources that you find really useful. Yeah, well, the website is very much in its infancy. So I've started taking some of those strategies like modelling that we were talking about and looking at how they can be used in the classroom. So there is a lot more to come up on there, but also looking at how they link to theory. So my next one is about the use of highlighters, (laughs) which doesn't sound very exciting, But part of research is how a lot of students just highlight things and think that they've read something. And it's about looking at those and saying, actually, how can we use this as a tool to select information to help us learn better? So that's what I'm trying to do there as well. Also develop some sort of brief snapshots about research. So, for example, different research and different theories. So looking at the zone of proximal development and looking at, you know, short areas where people can go and read more. So I suppose the website is... I suppose in its infancy, really, but I'm definitely developing that as it goes along. The case study that I talked about, and this isn't a plug, but the case study that I talked about that I did, I was actually asked to do that by Jennifer Webb, and it's in her, she's done a a book called The Metacognition Handbook, which is a practical guide for teachers, and that's really accessible, and she has in there lots of different strategies, and there are case studies in there from other teachers. So, you know, I've read a lot of Jennifer's work before that she's done. She's done some subject-specific stuff for English literature. And I found, for me, that was a way in when I didn't really know an awful lot about different areas. So Jenny's just recently published that. And then, of course, the EEF have their guidance on there, which is, again, a great starting point and gives different references. And there's lots out there at the moment. You know, you only have to type metacognition into Twitter and there are lots of teacher blogs as well. And I really like the way that there are more teachers talking about metacognition and metacognitive strategies. So Sarah, tell us your website and also your Twitter account so people can follow your work. Okay, so the website is um, metacognitively.com. And my Twitter account is simply at Dowie Sarah. Lovely, at Dowie Sarah. That's D-O-W-E-Y and Sarah with a H. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. I wish you were here at homework time in my house, I have to (laughs) say. (laughs) But thank you so much for sharing your expertise, which I know will be of great benefit to teachers, teaching, educating staff and parents listening. Thank you so much, Sarah. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.